Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon and evening and welcome, depending on your time zone. I am your host, Joe Schuldenrein, and I want to thank you for tuning in to the fourth episode of our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I'd like to extend my appreciation to those of you who responded to last week's episode on the archaeology of New York City. Our listeners seem to be captivated by the fact that so much information on the past could be retrieved beneath the maze of pipes, utilities, and debris underlying the city streets. Folks were most intrigued by our discussion on the recovery of historic vessels within the landfill ringing Manhattan Island, and especially of the big ship, parts of which are still preserved beneath the footprint of the former World Trade Center. There was also considerable interest in the workings of the regulatory process that mandates archaeological recovery. So again, I extend my appreciation to our guest group of prominent New York City archaeologists. I want to encourage the audience to continue to send in emails. However, there will be no call-ins today, as this program has been pre-recorded. Today's topic is a continuation of our recent theme on urban archaeology in a very real sense. Our program on Cahokia, the monumental mound city along the banks of the Mississippi River, gets to the heart of the emergence of the city as a concept generally, and in North America in particular. As school children, most of us learned something about the earliest cities, and we sort of generally associate them with the emergence of early civilizations in the deserts of the Fertile Crescent of Iraq or along the banks of the Nile in Egypt. In the New World, we typically associate urban development with South and Central America, specifically the famous Inca center of Machu Picchu in Peru and the magnificent mounds of Teotihuacan in Mexico. These are, of course, very high-profile archaeological sites. The North American continent has gotten considerably shorter shrift. As we discussed in our second episode, many Americans and non-Americans are familiar with the southwestern Amer Native American complexes at Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon. Cahokia, which was substantially bigger and arguably more complex than both of them, is less well known. Perhaps that's a function of this mound's size, its Midwestern location, a lower profile tourist draw than the spectacular desert landscapes in Arizona and Colorado. Another reason might simply be that Cahokia is geographically hidden in a sense, nestled within the western edge of East St. Louis, a decidedly unspectacular backdrop. Such considerations notwithstanding, Cahokia stands today as the ultimate monument to the emergence of the urban tradition on the North American continent. It is one of the most extensive prehistoric Native American sites anywhere, and to say that its archaeology is both uniquely fascinating and complex is an understatement. My own connection to this site is deeply personal on many levels. This is where my own professional career began and where my inspiration to pursue this line of work took hold and in dramatic fashion. In 1971, as a brash urban kid from New York City, I hustled an invitation to work at Cahokia through my undergraduate anthropology advisor. I simply thought that getting on a dig would be a ton of fun. No more, no less. And as my guests on this show will attest, that was all true. Cahokia at the time was one of the most intriguing settings for merging anthropological curiosity with social interaction. The science, well, that came a lot later, though ultimately it was the science that kept me going and advancing professionally. 
It was also at Cahokia where I learned how the archaeological hierarchy for major excavations was organized. During that first season, I was assigned to a crew that exposed the famous ritual burials of the virgins at Mount 72. In the early goings in 1971, the excavations yielded nothing but dense clay fill that we were instructed to remove en masse in serious 100-degree heat with 90% humidity. I was grousing about that to a co-worker, a fellow named Terry Norris, when an older distinguished gentleman came by and asked me who I was. I said, hey, I'm just a college kid and they're paying me peanuts to move heavy dirt at this place they call a site. I haven't really figured this out, and who are you? He responded by saying, oh, me? I'm the guy that's supposed to figure it out. They pay me to think great thoughts. Norris cast a stupefied look in my direction, blurted out an expletive, and identified the gentleman as the late and renowned archaeologist Dr. Melvin Fowler. Norris noted Fowler was the boss, or principal investigator, that I'd better watch out what I said from now on. That was exactly 40 years ago, and bosses changed, and the great thinkers and their thoughts changed as well at Cahokia and elsewhere. So it's my pleasure to introduce the present generation of Cahokia experts to navigate us through the current state of knowledge at this great site. Terry Norris and Bill Eisminger. Dr. Terry Norris, that same kid who introduced me to dirt archaeology, has been district archaeologist for the St. Louis District of the Corps of Engineers for 35 years. He received his Ph.D. at St. Louis University. Terry's main interests are in the prehistoric and colonial archaeological heritage of the central Mississippi Valley. He also specializes in 19th century rivercraft and historic cartography. Bill Eisminger is the assistant site director curator, and public relations director at Cahokia Mound State Historic Site. Bill received his M.A. in anthropology from Southern Illinois University. He has spent the majority of his professional career at Cahokia Mounds, where he's led excavations and public field school. Bill has written extensively on Cahokia Mounds for both professional and popular publications. Recently, he authored a widely circulated volume entitled Cahokia Mounds, America's First City. Bill and Terry, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Good to talk to you. Uh, Bill, let's get started with a brief overview of the Cahokia site. We know that its origins are related to the fertile floodplain of the central Mississippi Valley. What gave rise to the emergence of the site as a major urban center, if you could take it from the beginning? Well, we think it's in great part it's due to the location near the uh, confluence of the Mississippi, Missouri, and Illinois rivers, which were major transportation routes, communication routes at that time, mostly by you know, dugout canoe. But we also see that there were numerous lakes and streams and marshes in the area that were formed by the meandering of the, the Mississippi over hundreds of thousands of years, which created a very fertile floodplain. Uh, There's a major flyway for migrating ducks and geese and other waterfowl. Uh, soils were good for agriculture. And it kind of grew out of pre-existing cultures that were already in this area for what we call the late woodland people. A number of settlements in this area that probably merged together at some point as this new uh, type of culture began to develop we call Mississippian. And we find Mississippian not only here at Cahokia but throughout the Mississippi Valley and the southeastern U.S. as far as the Gulf Coast and far north as the Great Lakes and from the southern Appalachians to eastern Oklahoma and Texas. So it's really a, a variety of different cultural period, cultural groups uh, or tribes, if you wish, uh, speaking different languages, but doing things much the same way, which we lump under the term Mississippian. So it was something that happened here, we think, that really made Cahokia grow exponentially, so much bigger than any of the other 
Mississippian sites. And whether it was a charismatic leader or something that happened here or something else about the location, we don't really know for sure. But uh, for some reason, it certainly exceeded the in size and scope anything else that was on this continent north of Mexico. Okay, if you would though, let's let's take it back to to time frames. What time are we looking? Time frame are we looking at for the woodland culture when the earliest individual sites uh, emerged? What what's that time frame? Yeah, probably around six to seven hundred A.D. when we see a number of late woodland settlements in this area. Then we have what we call the emergent Mississippian culture starting to develop a little before a thousand, maybe between nine hundred and a thousand A.D. Then the Mississippian culture is pretty well established by a thousand. And at Cahokia, it seems like right around 1050 AD, there was a, a major development, uh, if you want to call it a population explosion. People were moving in from a lot of the smaller communities outside the region uh, to become part of this Cahokia phenomenon. And uh, so it reached its peak mostly between about 1050 to 1150, maybe as late as 1200. And at that time, there may have been as many as ten to 20,000 people living here. And you could double that for the surrounding area because it was part of a uh, metropolitan area for its time. It was the big city, and it was surrounded by a number of satellite communities. Uh, where East St. Louis is today, there were about 45 mounds, whereas at Cahokia, we probably had about 120. And in uh, St. Louis, just across the river, another 26 mounds there. And there were a couple other uh, major communities that had maybe about a dozen mounds to the north and south. Then all around these were uh, single mound communities and a lot of moundless hamlets and farmsteads. So you have sort of a hierarchy of settlement here uh, from the, just a few houses to the big city, as we call it, at Cahokia Mounds. And the Mississippian tradition itself uh, extended well beyond Cahokia, obviously. Can you give us an idea of the geography of that complex? Well, we know there are Mississippian people as far north as uh, southern Wisconsin and Minnesota and stretching a little bit into Iowa and all the way down the, the Mississippi drainage to the Gulf of Mexico uh, as far as uh, northern Florida and uh, parts of Georgia and a little bit of South Carolina and sort of south of the Ohio River primarily. We see some in southern Indiana. Uh, Western or eastern Oklahoma and Texas, as far west as uh, Kansas City, be about the limits. So it's basically a large sort of L-shaped area from the cutting across the southern states and up the Mississippi Valley. So you're looking at uh, basically about a quarter of the country that was uh, involved in in, in this uh, expansion from these smaller woodland sites, and all of a sudden they became sort of more urbanized. What drew the people to Cahokia in particular, and are there other sites that are somewhat similar to it? Well, there are some other large sites. Uh, there There were small Mississippian sites as well, but we do see larger, more complex communities uh, with the sort of a higher hierarchy of uh, development and uh, culture and politics, I guess you'd say, as well. So we see large uh, Mississippian sites such as Angel Mounds in Indiana, Moundville, Alabama, Etowa Mounds in northern Georgia, and uh, there's uh, several of them down in the, in the lower valley, the Mississippi Valley as well. So it's, you know, these are like regional centers that would probably... Uh, uh, 
be all related in some way or connected. At least there's probably something that they shared, whether it was religion or uh, some other system that you know, kind of united them. Uh, they all do things a lot the same way, but there are regional differences or variations. And Cokie really seems to be the first that really developed to any extent like this. Uh, and it, there's been a suggestion that there may even be uh, people like, uh, almost mission, missionizing uh, from Cahokia, carrying a new religion perhaps uh, into these other areas. And along with that, the, uh, the symbolism, the iconography, the artifacts uh, that are symbolic of that religion. Tell us a little bit about the iconography, if you would. Well, the, there are several things that we see that are pretty uniform throughout this, the Mississippian world. One symbol is what we call the circle and cross, with the circle being an earth symbol and the cross representing the four cardinal directions or the four winds or the four quarters of the earth. We see this uh, on pottery. We see it on shell engravings. We see it in copper uh, artifacts and a variety of other things, too. And it, so it's at least one factor. Uh, we also see a lot of what we call birdman symbolism. Uh, one of our main artifacts found here at Cahokia is what we call the birdman tablet. On one side, it has a engraving on, on a piece of sandstone that shows a man wearing a bird-like mask with a, uh, a wing, a uh, feathered wing off to one side in sort of a dancing posture. And the back side has a crosshatch pattern. And we think what the symbolism being displayed here is that the bird represents the upper world, uh, the man represents the middle world or this world, and the backside with the cross-hatching may represent snakeskin or the underworld. So these are three spiritual realms that uh, most Indian societies uh, did recognize and utilize in their belief system. And we think uh, that may be part of what's developing here at Cahokia, but it's, it's almost universal to some degree in, in even later Indian societies as well. Okay, um, we'll be back in about uh, a few minutes and we'll continue with our discussion on the Mississippian occupation of Cahokia and the expansion of that community in the Midwestern United States. We'll be back. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. One of the phenomena that's very, very extensive in Cahokia and in other Mississippian sites are the famous mounds that are considered to be ceremonial. Monk's Mound is the major mound at Cahokia, but there are satellite mounds that are related to particular types of use and and may have some ceremonial symbolism. I'd like you to discuss that for a while, Bill, if you could. Tell us a little bit about how the mounds themselves uh, formed and why why they are why are they elevated above the general level of the floodplain and what we know about that today? Well, we find three uh, basic types of mounds here at Cahokia. The most common variety is what we call a, a platform mound or a temple mound. These are rectangular in shape and flat on the top, and they would have buildings on top. These would be homes of the elite or leaders, uh, religious buildings or temples, uh, charnel houses where bodies might be prepared for burial, uh, and maybe council lodges or public granaries and things like that, special buildings that were more important and thus they were elevated, and the people and activities associated them were also elevated. We also have conical mounds or round mounds, and these are sort of a continuation from the woodland period where that type was primarily used for burial purposes, and we really haven't dug much into uh, any of these mounds here at Cahokia, but based on work at other Mississippian sites, we do think that they were continuing in that kind of a function for burials, but they also may be marking important locations. And also the third type of mound, which is kind of unique to the Cahokia area, is what we call a ridgetop mound, sort of shaped like the roof of a house. It comes to a crest at the top, and these are longer than they are wide. And these seem to be uh, sometimes used as marker mounds, as some people have called them, because we find two of the biggest ones at the western and the southern limits of the site, and there's a couple smaller ones uh, along a basic north-south line of the site and a couple others elsewhere on the site. So there's probably about six in Cahokia in, in particular. And where they've had excavations into some of these, they've found indications that these ridge mounds uh sort of encapsulates smaller mounds or earlier mounds, and some of those actually cover burials. So they may have some kind of a mortuary function, and sometimes we find them paired up, a a platform mound and a conical mound, what we call twin mounds, and we think that in that case the the building on the flat mound may have been a a charnel house with maybe important people being prepared for burial, perhaps in the adjacent conical mound. Uh, We know that most people were not buried in mounds, but in cemeteries. It's just some of the more important people or special kinds of burials that are found associated with uh, with with mounds. And we see at Cahokia, we think there was about 120 of them here originally. Now, we've lost a lot of them to modern agriculture and construction, and some have been sold for a fill. We have about 80 that survive here today in some form or another. Unfortunately, we now have 70 of those protected as part of Cahokia Mound State Historic Site. We're owned and operated by the state of Illinois. So we have a major concentration, the largest mound concentration in the country, right here at Cahokia. 
Let me point out that to, to the listeners that one of the characteristics of this part of the country is that the topography is very, very subdued, so that the mounds of any kind of an elevation are really unique features and alert people to the fact that these are artificial mounds, they're not natural, and uh, they would obviously signal that there's archaeology. Terry, can you tell us a little bit about the archaeology of the mounds themselves, and when you excavate them, what do you find, and how, do, how are you sort of called attention to the fact that there's archaeology there at the uh, at the introduction to this uh, this this program uh, you mentioned the, the first time that you dug a mound you know at uh, in 1971 that was one of the ridge top mounds one of the ceremonial ridge top mounds that were uh, uh, that were on the site the uh, uh, the mounds themselves uh, you know you have the in terms of construction of the mounds uh, if that's what you're, you know, they were, uh, there were a series of borrow pits that were around, uh, you know, they had to get material from somewhere on the site. And there, uh, today you can see a series of what, what are depressions or, or actually shallow lakes that are, uh, across the site. Those were borrow pits and the, uh, uh, the populations would, uh, would place material in baskets, not unlike apple baskets, and would, would, uh, they would suspend them from, from lines that went across uh, their foreheads and, uh, supported them on their backs and deposit these things, uh, one basket load at a time on the, uh, on the mounds. And when we excavate them, uh, you can actually see the, uh, uh, in the cross sections of the mounds, you can actually see the basket loading that goes on. Uh, Bill had indicated that we had uh, uh, across the site we have different kinds of mounds. Uh, one thing about this site that's and many sites uh, for the size of this site, this was uh, as he indicated, it's about six square miles. Less than one percent of this site has been excavated. Uh, wow! And less uh, than one percent. Less than one percent of of six square miles and. Uh, one of the the, the most the, the thing that I am most involved in right now, uh, and we, we talked about it later, is uh, is the protection of that. There's there's uh, one third of the site is outside of the state park boundary, and uh, uh, it's vulnerable to development and any kind of uh, you know. Well, if if you don't if you don't own it or don't you can't protect it, and. Uh, so I mean, uh, and yeah, that's including some uh, some of the mounds that remain that aren't part of that uh, uh, the ones that are in the uh, the state historic site. Uh, the okay. So how do you how do you regulate that? I mean, how do you control uh, outside people just sort of willy nilly going around and excavating these mounds that are beyond the confines of the state park? Is there a program for the state to buy up land? And to shield it from intruders, how does that work, Bill? Well, we have a, a couple things. There, are, there is a, a state law and federal laws now that protect human remains, even on private property, including mounds, because most mounds can be considered as potential burial mounds. So, if there is a mound on somebody's private land, uh, they, if they're going to impact it, they're supposed to, you know, follow the certain procedures that are required by the state or the federal laws. And especially if they do encounter human remains in the process of some construction or whatever. So there are a few laws intact. In that is, if people notify the right authorities about these things. Now, for the most part, contractors try to avoid notifying. And we have lost a lot of sites and mounds and other archaeological features uh, due to modern you know, construction. So we, uh, within our 
property, the state historic uh, site boundaries, we have about 2,200 acres. And the site covered almost 4,000 acres. And so there are areas that are still outside uh, the state property, as uh, Terry had mentioned. And we try to make people locally aware of what we have in this area, and hopefully they'll come to us if they do encounter something. But it's very, very hard to to regulate uh, unless you actually uh, you know, see people doing things or if they've applied for permits to do certain types of construction, which requires some type of review. So there are review procedures that are in place for uh, you know, letting contracts that involve any expenditure of federal money or state money. That, that is not to say, this is Terry, uh, that is not to say that there are antiquities laws uh, as, as are in, in place in, in Europe and uh, England, for instance. Uh, the laws in this country are, are, are not set up to, uh, to protect uh, either objects or sites of antiquity in the same manner they are in Europe. That's correct. So what do you do in a situation like that? Is there any strain between the community and the park? Is there any dialogue between them? Is there any interaction that will sort of mitigate against these, these types of situations where there would be questions about the antiquity and actually excavating, etc.? Well, part of it is public information and, and, and dialogue. You, you, want, you want to try and be good neighbors to people. And uh, most people, you know, uh, I, I have found that farmers are very interested in what are on their property. Uh, they, uh, you know, their their business is farming, and that's how they they make their living. But uh, they are also uh, stewards of their land, and they're uh, they're keenly interested in what's what's there. And a lot of times, I, in my personal experience, if you can if you can talk to them in a reasonable manner, uh, and don't walk up to them with a badge in your hand and say, you know, I'm here to help you and get off your land, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can, you know, if you you can. Explain to them what's there, and you know, oftentimes it isn't on a, on an entire uh, their their entire track of property. It uh, you know, if you can get them to you know, if you can explain why something is important, a lot of times they will uh, they won't damage it. And also, uh, this is Bill again. Um, there has there has been over the years a, a land acquisition you know, program. When I first started here forty years ago in 1971, we owned about. Well, maybe around, right around 500 acres, and now we have 2,200 acres. So the state has made an effort to acquire and protect more of the land uh, within our boundaries. But there's still a lot, as we said, outside. And as part of a, a recent effort, by probably in the last seven or eight years or so, uh, the Cahokia Mounds Museum Society, which Terry is president of right now. Yeah, he's stealing my thunder right now. But yeah, <laughs> they've, they've begun a, a land acquisition program and uh, through grants and whatever donations and uh, funds they can raise to do that. Now, I'll let Terry explain about that a little bit. Well, that's, it, it, again, it goes back to willing sellers. It's not something where you condemn somebody's property, but as funds are available, uh, and that, uh, that, that goes back to the... the we set up a private not-for-profit corporation uh, chartered in Illinois for the protection and interpretation of Cahokia. And uh, every penny we raise, we, we run, we have a bookstore here at Cahokia. Every penny we raise stays at the site. And over the, over the last seven or eight years, if we, approximately seven or eight years, we've, we've purchased 50 tracts of ground, uh, small tracts, as funds are available to us. Uh, and uh, of those 50 tracks, they're in a, uh, a, a very important, what we, what we believe is it was a very important part of the site. 
and uh, included in those 50 uh, tracks are uh, we've got uh, two complete mounds and uh, and uh, portions of two others. And as we purchase those, uh, we do what's called a, 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 a quick claim, or, a, or a, a, uh, we immediately transfer the title to those uh, those properties to the state, and they immediately become part of the state uh, historic site. So, uh, very very proud of that, and it's uh, it's something I would encourage anybody. And in, in, as Bill indicated, and as you spoke to, this isn't any site at all. This is the largest site in North America. It is that. Excavation that you, when you first put a shovel in the ground, that has been described in layman's uh, uh, journals as the King Tut of North America, one of the individuals that was buried there. Uh, it is an absolutely incredible site. Uh, as I say, there isn't anything like this anywhere else in North America. You spoke of Mesa Verde. Uh, while a very impressive site, it's just a small apartment complex compared to this. This was a a giant site, and uh, it's looking more like that at its zenith around 800 years ago, there were there possibly were three nodes to this site, and it wasn't just Cahokia. It may have been, the site may have extended, there may have been three nodes, one at Cahokia, one at East St. Louis, and one at St. Louis, which would have extended. The actual site could have been eight miles long. Uh, it just... It's just an incredible sight, and it's uh, and on that and on that note, we'll have to stop for a few minutes, but we'll be back and we'll discuss this at greater length in a few minutes. Thank you, gentlemen. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. What are some of the issues that kids face every day? You'll find out when you tune into the appropriately named Today's Kids. Your hosts are here to open the doors to a forum of all kinds of issues. Nothing is off the table here, and because it's on the Voice America Kids channel, you know you're getting a kid's perspective. Tune in every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Today's Kids. Your hosts will lead this form of engaging conversation on Voice America Kids. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein back here with Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and Archaeology of the 21st Century. We've been talking about the magnificent complex of Cahokia in the Midwestern United States across the river from St. Louis, Missouri, and in East St. Louis, Illinois. And uh, Terry, you were telling us about the broad reach of the Cahokia site and what we're knowing about the uh, large centers 
of population and ceremonial activity in the in the vicinity of Monk's Mound and Cahokia generally. Why don't you resume with that and enlighten us a little bit more about the extent of that? Okay, in the uh, uh, in the relatively recent past, uh, there's been a lot of really great archaeology that has gone on uh, surrounding uh, surrounding Cahokia that's been in conjunction with. Uh, Primarily with highway projects, although there are some uh, some other projects as well. But uh, and it, during that, uh, some of those activities uh, with the interstate uh, uh, highway construction. One of the things Bill had talked about are these these other centers that uh, that surround surround Cahokia in this immediate area, and then uh, further extended in in different areas of the uh, what the continental United States. One of the, I think, one of the most fascinating things that's been uh, that we've we've discovered uh, during these most recent excavations is that some of these figurines, these icons, religious, what we interpret as religious icons, they're a material that uh, it's a it's a bright red material, uh, almost a, uh, it's a soft stone, but a bright red stone, and uh, it turns out through uh, the analysis that they've done on, and these, these things have been found, these objects, and they're high art objects, uh, they've been found uh, in the in southeastern part of the United States, Oklahoma, here, uh, in very, very wide areas. Uh, all of them, they've done spectrographic analysis at the University of Illinois on these things, and it turns out that all of these objects uh, were made from Parent material that occurred uh, that was dug up. The quarry for this material was in North St. Louis County, uh, which means that that uh, as as Bill alluded to, Cahokia is not only the largest of these sites, but it was probably the progenitor or the creator of uh, maybe the the very the the underpinnings of of that whole Mississippian idea about what what the Mississippian religious symbolism was. Uh, because these these objects are are they're they're found far flung from uh, many many hundreds of miles from Cahokia at these other large centers, uh, and it, uh, that that to me is a, an, an exciting uh, one of the most exciting things that's come out of the science of the the most recent past. Now you have mentioned that uh, the extent of, of the sphere of influence of Cahokia, and that's something we didn't know way back when you and I were excavating in the seventies. That's correct, right? Well, I don't know if they didn't know it, but you and I certainly didn't know. No, it. we didn't know it. <laughs> but so tell us a little bit: as when when did that start, and when did this uh, kind of uh, information on the extent of Cahokia, certainly in the western, uh, in in that area, when did that uh, information start to? come together I would say probably uh, you had uh, you know like in any science you build on on the the the, the findings and interpretations of uh, earlier earlier folks but I would say the, the most recently the uh, in the the mid 1970s in conjunction with uh, the, there's a there's a loop of highway that goes around the east side of north of uh, the metropolitan st. Louis area it's called i-255 and during those uh, those investigations uh, and it was about a, I believe, about a 13-mile-long stretch of highway. Uh, Sixty archaeological sites were found, and uh, it was during the the investigations of those and the interpretations of the artifacts uh, that uh, uh, that a lot of this, uh, uh, our, our, our uh, I'd say, I would say that the, the the interpretation of the Mississippian symbolism and and the the interaction uh, between and among these sites uh, really. Uh, was exponent was exponentially uh, uh, increased. 
Would you say so, and Bill? That, yeah. In other words, it gave people kind of a look at Cahokia from the outside in instead of the inside out. So we could see that it didn't exist in a vacuum. They found all these other sites, and the information and the analysis they've done has really helped us understand more about the chronological sequence of uh, sites, so the, the fine-tuning of the dating, um, finding more of these uh, exotic materials indicates the extent of trade they had, not only locally but in distant areas. So there's a lot of information that's come out of that, and as well as some people reanalyzing materials from earlier excavations at Cahokia with the technology and knowledge we have today. Bill, take us back a little bit into the early explorations of Cahokia and, and when that kind of research began and how it started and who were the key figures in the exploration of Cahokia historically. We can kind of go back into the late 1800s when, uh, before archaeology was much of a science, uh, there were a lot of uh, historians and amateur archaeologists that were doing some excavations. But back then it was mainly to look for artifacts, and uh, they did find quite a few interesting things. But uh, the first archaeologist to dig here was back in the early 20s, Warren King Moorhead, who had worked at a lot of archaeological sites and mound sites in the east, and uh, he was out of uh, Massachusetts, and he worked with, in conjunction with the State Museum, the Illinois State Museum and the University of Illinois in excavations here. And um, what he had did, what he had done is actually talk to some of these people who had done earlier work, and there was a Dr. Patrick, a dentist from Belleville, who actually commissioned the first detailed map of the site back in the 1870s. And so Moorhead took that map and relocated, you know, where the mounds that were that Patrick had mapped in. And it, yeah, he actually added more mounds to that map. And his activations were the first that really were under some kind of control, but even by to that day standards, they were, they were a little primitive, but uh, certainly better than what had been going on before. So when you he, say primitive, what do you mean? As far as documentation and mapping and uh, record keeping and things like that, you know, there's some of that has disappeared, but you know, there was a limited amount of that kind of uh, detailed uh, uh, documentation of the excavations. Now, one of the things he he was interested in is. We were, you know, there have been a lot of local attempts by uh, old public officials and citizens in this area to try and get the state to buy some property, protect the mounds, and uh, either as a state park or as a national park. And those uh, bills were introduced to the state legislature but failed for various reasons. And one of the reasons was that the uh, uh, director of the Illinois State Museum at that time uh, thought that maybe the mounds were not man-made but were natural remnants of uh, the glaciation or the movement of the river uh, through the valley here. And Moorhead pretty much confirmed that they were indeed man-made as he did his excavations and could see the basket loading and finally convinced people that this was, you know, not just a natural site, but a, a man-made one. And uh, he also took all the legislature to task in the newspaper articles. And soon after that, the new bill was introduced in the state bought the first 144 acres in 1925. Since then, there have been scattered excavations, oh, mostly in the 40s and 50s, uh, but the majority of the work's been going on since uh, the 1960s uh, with the inter interstate construction, 55 and 70 run through our site, old US 40, and so there was a lot of work in conjunction with that, uh, and Dr. Fowler 
from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee had a National Science Foundation, Foundation grant to do the Cahokia mapping project to create a new modern map of the of the area, and uh, so uh, he was uh, able to do a lot of excavations. The excavations at Mound 72 were part of that project, and he also compiled all the old records and maps and documents of the site. And also, in conjunction with the uh, interstate construction, uh, is how we actually discovered the Woodhenge here at Cahokia. Uh, there was supposed to be Interstate 255 was originally supposed to come right through our site, and when it was planned to do that, then uh, Dr. Warren Wintry with the uh, uh, Illinois State Museum did some excavations in the, in the area where there was going to be a, a series of ramps to go onto the highway. And that's how they discovered where Woodhenge had been, by finding not only uh, hundreds of houses and pits, but also a lot of large post pits. And when he realized that they were forming arcs of circles and uh, he, did, he and Dr. Robert Hall came later and did some additional work. Uh, they could identify at least four of these post-circle monuments that apparently were used like a sun calendar. Mm-hmm. And since then, uh, we've done additional work and reconstructed the Woodhenge at the original uh, location. We now know there's, there were five, at least five of them there, and uh, each one with a different number of posts, uh, different diameter. But there are posts that align with the equinoxes and the solstice sunrises. So that's why we interpret it as a as on calendar. And that that uh, science is reasonably well documented. I mean, have these alignments borne out uh, the actual scientific information or no? Yeah, and actually, we go out there at the equinoxes and solstices and watch the sunrise, and it still lines up. So, it does. Yeah. And so that was that kind of work was uh, that that level of work was being undertaken in the late sixties and early seventies. That was uh, that was in the early sixties and. Then uh, after oh. after the mid sixties on, there's been some kind of project here every summer. Uh, started out mostly through the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, and then the Illinois State Museum. Then the University of Illinois had a number of projects uh, at different parts of the site. Uh, Washington University out of St. Louis, a number of uh, local institutions, and Beloit College out of Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, as I mentioned, and. Uh, then we also started our, our public uh, field school program in the uh, mid-70s. Uh, we ran through our uh, our support group, the Cahokia Mounds Museum Society. Well, what do, things, yeah, go ahead, Terry. Uh, one of the things I wanted to, uh, to, to add to that excellent analysis Bill just gave us was uh, when he's talking about Warren K. Moorhead, uh, if, if, if you're down here, you understand, I mean, Cahokia is literally in the shadow of downtown St. Louis. It's in the middle of a metropolitan area and is subject to all kinds of development. And it, it has escaped death several times. And really, the work of Warren K. Moorhead in the 1920s, from the, when he was from the University of Illinois, uh, was, was one of the, the most important uh, early saviors of the site uh, at that time. The railroads, uh, a railroad was eyeing all of these mounds as fill for railroad embankments. Uh, they were going to take down all of the mounds in the site and use them as a ready source of uh, material for uh, for railroad embankments. Railroads were, and that that, uh, that 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 commercial venue was was very very important at that time before airplanes and other things and and the locks and dam system. Uh, it, it, his work was one of the things that that uh, that, that 
that saved the site from that fate. And we would have, uh, had it not been for him, uh, <laughs> it'd be a lot flatter than it is today. Okay. Uh, what do we know about uh, daily life at Cahokia? Is there archaeological evidence for that, for structure, for social well, organization? We, we can interpret some things from what we see. For instance, uh, when we built our, I still call it the new museum, we opened 22 years ago, <laughs> but uh, we had extensive excavations here. Uh, there were large excavations where the wood hinge was another one was called Track 15B, where a, a, a highway was going over the interstate and was being re- relocated. So when we look at some of those major, large-scale excavations, we can see patterns to the way that houses are laid out, and we can see how they change through time. For instance, here at the museum uh, location, we see that originally most houses, and throughout the time of Cahokia, they were single-family dwellings or nuclear families. You know, just the size that would accommodate parents and children, maybe occasionally another relative. But uh, the earlier ones are a little bit smaller. The floors are fairly deep in the ground to help insulate. Uh, They're covered with uh, prairie grass thatching for the roofs, uh, pole framework uh, for the walls, and layers of mats on the walls or plastering with clay to help protect from weather. And uh, initially they're aligned more in a sort of a north-south direction, east-west direction, with the cardinal points. Then uh, a little bit later, we start to see the houses being a little bit bigger, but clustered around uh, courtyards. Uh, maybe, you know, sisters had their houses next to each other and shared cooking and storage facilities, or some, you know, family or, or kinship group had their own little clusters of uh, neighborhoods. And then uh, through time, the, the houses get more square-shaped, we start to see more internal storage pits and less sharing, perhaps as resources are becoming more scarce. So we can see how one of Cahokia's neighborhoods evolved over a 200-year period just you know, from this one excavation, and it gives us insight into what's happening across the rest of the site as well and throughout the region. Go and ahead. on that note, I'm going to have to go to break. We will come back shortly and resume our conversation on Cahokia and the lifestyles and patterns of adaptation that were taking place during the Mississippian period. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Chicken, 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 chicken
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, your host for... Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and Archaeology of the 21st Century. I'm talking with uh, Terry Norris and Bill Eisminger about the prehistoric mound site of Cahokia along the Mississippi Valley, and we are discussing lifestyles and what the archaeological evidence can tell us about how people lived at that point in time. Uh, Bill, could you continue on and give us some more insights on uh, human lifeways? During well, the Mississippi with the, the Mississippian community, especially these large ones, we start to see more specialization of labor. For instance, there are people who are the, the hunters and the fishermen and the arrowhead makers and the bead makers and the, the warriors. So we see a, also a ranking in society that we hadn't seen much evidence for prior to this. Uh, so there's a, a hierarchy of you know leadership and people of you know, special status and rank in their society. And it's much more evident than in earlier cultures and even later cultures. And part of this is, you know, reflected in the way they buried people sometimes. Uh, those that have more things buried with them are usually people who are uh, of higher status during life. Uh, we start to see also, uh, even though trade had been going on for thousands of years, throughout the region and throughout the country. We see it being more formalized during Mississippian times. and We see a lot of exotic materials. We see copper from Lake Superior. Uh, we see uh, uh, seashells uh, from the Gulf of Mexico. We get mica, a mineral from the southern Appalachians. We get chert or flint from many sources throughout the Midwest. A lot of minerals coming in from the Ozark area. So these people had uh, extensive trade networks uh, established and this is part of probably how this culture of Mississippian is spreading throughout such a broad area with these extensive uh, trade systems they have. And uh, we also see at one point in time they were having conflicts, too. Uh, they built a defensive wall we call the stockade or palisade, almost two miles long around the central ceremonial precinct. And this, there's something different about who lived inside and who lived outside, but this was basically a fort. It was built uh, four times. And each time would take about fifteen to 20,000 logs. So just the, the amount of labor and material and time to do something like that uh, indicates uh, the power of the, and the authority of the leadership, but also makes you wonder who is threatening a place this big. So it looks like the political systems are changing in the Mississippian world. We see other sites being fortified. Uh, we see more evidence of warfare and conflict uh, in society than we had before. In fact, even some of those... Uh, figurines that Terry was talking about that are representations of their belief system often depict warriors. We see a lot more of the fertility symbolism here in the Cahokia area. Other areas we see more of warrior symbolism showing up. So it's, uh, it reflects a change in, in the way things are being done in, in, in Mississippian society. So you're taking us through a culture that's becoming increasingly sophisticated with commercial networks, with complex social organizations, with uh, sort of a chiefdom 
uh, dominating the political structure and a variety of economic developments that are pretty sophisticated. At some point, Cahokia begins to decline. And why don't you take us through that chronology and those developments as we understand them today? It seems to start uh, around 1200 or so A.D. Um, and this is right, you know, right after the, the fortifications are being built. So it looks like there's a population decline at Cahokia, and uh, people are dispersing gradually. It doesn't seem to, be a, seem to be a disaster that wiped them out, but a combination of factors, including... Uh, depletion of resources in the area. Not only Cahokia, but all these surrounding communities were putting a big demand on the environment. Also, uh, uh, some climate changes that may have affected crops and food production, as well as the natural flora and fauna. Some evidence now of extended droughts. Uh, some people suggest even some major earthquake uh, activity that may have you know, kind of shook things up, literally and figuratively. Uh, but eventually they disperse into smaller groups, go elsewhere. We don't know exactly where they went or what tribes they became. We're looking more and more at some of the central Siouan-speaking groups as possibly having connections such as the uh, Osage, the Ponca, the Omaha, the Quapa, and a few others because of their symbolism and their complex social structure. But uh, at this point, we don't have any definitive uh, 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 descendants, I guess you'd say, but uh, something we'll be exploring more in the future. What is the evidence for the environmental change? Uh, it's something that's uh, apparently cor correlating with some of the uh, droughts out in the southwest at the same time, but not as severe. But uh, it comes from uh, various analyses of uh, plants and vegetation and uh, pollen, things in, and grains in the soil and things like that that show you know, evidence of climate change. It's also the beginning of the Little Ice Age, sort of you know, in the 1200s. That didn't really get to its full extent until the 1500s after Cahokia was gone. Uh, Cahokia is pretty well abandoned by 1350 or so. But uh, there'd be, there would be probably earlier and later frosts, uh, more severe weather episodes like droughts and floods uh, that go along with some climate changes. And this is information that we're getting in the last few years, I gather. Yeah, so scientific methods right. get, get more sophisticated. So that at what point... Do the Cahokians disappear, and was it uh, significantly before contact with the Europeans or not? Yeah, so it was probably the mid-1300s or up until about 1400. In fact, the Mississippian culture is pretty well gone from the Midwest by 1400, but it does continue in the South. So when the Spaniards and the French came in in the 1500s and 1600s in the South, they encountered people still living the Mississippian lifestyle. So that's where we draw some of our information and parallels in our interpretation of Cahokia, but uh, there was the earliest uh, European was Marquette and Juliet, Juliet coming in through about 1673 uh, in this area. But they didn't see the mounds at that time, and they'd been long abandoned. But as Bill indicated, down in the southern, uh, southern Mississippi River Valley, the Natchez were living what appears to be uh, very similar to what, would, what we think was going on up here uh, with mounds and... Uh, everything we see here archaeologically. Yeah, so they, that tr that tradition carried on for a little bit longer in the southern part of yeah, the continent. The, Nat the Natchez that Terry mentioned, for instance, their leader was known as the Great Sun. He lived on the biggest mound. and He died. People were sacrificed to go with him into the afterlife. And it's kind of what we're seeing. We think it's very, something very similar at Mound 72 with the uh, burial of the leader on a blanket of 20,000 shell beads and people buried around him and 
mass you know, graves of young women uh, to accompany him, or for whether it was all one event or a series of events, there's some debate about that, but uh, something unusual going on, and, but the Natchez give us the closest understanding or parallel how something like that might have happened. Well, obviously, Cahokia was a phenomenal place, and I know that uh, Cahokia is sustained in large measure by private contributions and by support of the community and uh, really across the continent and somewhat internationally. Terry, can you tell us how people can get in touch with you or Bill regarding uh, support for the, the efforts of the Cahokia Museum? You, you bet, Joe. Uh, the, uh, the as I said uh, earlier, the Cahokia Mounds Museum Society is a private not-for-profit uh, that, that supports this site, and we passionately believe in it, and it, it is such an important site. Uh, every penny of donations that we receive, either through direct memberships or, or a donation, stays at the site. Uh, we're all unpaid volunteers. Uh, if you're interested, which I certainly would uh, hope you would be, you could go to cahokiamounds.org, one word, cahokiamounds.org, and uh, we have a website there. And uh, if you, we would love for you to become a member. Uh, you get uh, quarterly newsletters and uh, invited to events. And uh, uh, just it, it would be, uh, if you're at all interested in this site or learning more about the site, this is a way to do it, and it would really help us out and uh, would be very much appreciated. And we'll have to close at this point. I want to thank my guests, Terry Norris and Bill Eisminger, for providing us insights on the growth of the earliest and largest urban center in North America, the prehistoric metropolis of Cahokia. Next week, we're changing topics, moving from the earliest urban manifestations of the New World to a somewhat more controversial topic, and specifically the origins and chronologies of the earliest peopling of the Americas. Our guests are going to be Vance Holliday of the University of Arizona and David Meltzer from Southern Methodist University. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.